0: These evenings on the retreat, we're slowly working our way through the 12 qualities of the transcendent dependent origination. And these are different qualities that come into play as a person walks, engages in the path of practice. These qualities can appear very mildly, and they can appear very strongly. I think of them a little bit as operating a spiral. So, uh, for example, uh, the topic for tonight is uh, samadhi. There might be just a teeny bit of samadhi, but that little bit of samadhi might give birth to greater faith, and the greater faith gives birth to greater uh, delight to joy tranquility, happiness, which then gives birth to greater concentration, which gives birth to even stronger faith. And so it goes, and they can build on each other. So it's not necessarily just a one straight line. They're mutually supportive, these qualities. And this evening I'll be talking about samadhi, and one of the things, one of the points I'd like to make is that the English word concentration is probably not the best choice for translating the word samadhi. So I'll be saying a little bit about that and also offering you some alternatives and explain why. It's very important in the Buddhist path to liberation samadhi because it's really a supportive condition to see clearly. And that'll be the topics for tomorrow, next few nights. Um, But in order to see clearly, the mind has to be steadied. The, the, the gaze has to be steady, stable. In the same way, that if you hold a telescope to look at the moon, uh, you can't really hold it in your hand very well without it wobbling. But if you put it on a tripod, you can see something far away like the moon uh, because of because of the stability of the tripod. So the, the function, one of the functions of samadhi, is to create that stability so we can begin to see more deeply. And it's hard to see deeply into our life because of all the conditioning we have, all the bias, all the preconceived ideas, all the conditioning that we operate under. And uh, that conditioning can seem like um, it's just the nature of the universe, that this is how things are, that um, we have this very, very deep conditioning that we carry with us. And uh, so I gave you an example a few nights ago of this little, it wasn't that deep, but the conditioning that I was not a good artist. Uh, I had no artistic ability. And I carried that with me for six years as the nature of the universe. And we get lessons from our family, from our society, from our, from our, all kinds of schools, all kinds of places, um, our culture about how to understand things. And it's really hard to, begin questioning those understandings unless we can see very clearly and stably. And so part of the function of samadhi is to create the proper conditions to begin seeing clearly. Um, when I was thinking about, talking about samadhi, uh, it came to mind, There are, there's lots of similes, metaphors for samadhi and perhaps uh, the metaphors are useful in that maybe they speak to a part of the, the mind that, uh, that maybe evokes memory or a sense or intuition of these states that uh, perhaps just a kind of a didactic description of it couldn't. So I'll be giving a variety of kind of examples and stories this evening. And perhaps uh, you can allow the stories to Touch on your imagination a little bit. So the first one is um, I thought of was when I was uh, practicing in Burma at the Mahasi Center. I was there doing an eight-month retreat like you're doing here, and it was a very large um, monastery meditation center, kind of the size of a small junior college perhaps. And every morning I would walk to breakfast to be a single long single file of men. First the monks and laymen walking single file to the men's dining hall. But to get there in the morning, we had to walk right by the women's meditation hall. And because it's a warm climate, uh, there were a whole series of open doors on two sides of the building, long sides of the building. So they were always open. And you look right into this huge hall. And what I saw there is one of the seven wonders that I've seen in my life. Every morning, I literally saw 500 women sitting in more or less straight rows, meditating, upright, with tremendous dignity and stillness and concentration. I would look into this hall and I would be so inspired by the stillness and the power that coexisted there tremendous stillness kind of, kind of emanated from it and the sense of strength and dignity in that place. It was really inspiring for me to see. It reminds me of the story of a king who uh, was kind of a bad king so he had a guilty conscience and maybe worried about people usurping him. And he went to see the Buddha one night middle of the night And the Buddha was reported to be in a grove of trees with a large assembly of a thousand monks and nuns. And he got off his horse and left his weapons behind and kind of went in barefoot or on the ground, walking in to this grove of trees. And he got spooked because there were a thousand monastics meditating in stillness. And there's something about the stillness of people meditating together that is palpable. And for him, he, he, couldn't, ima- he couldn't imagine so many people sitting together in silence, such silence, more silent than silent, that uh, he thought it was an ambush. He thought he'd been tricked. But eventually, he got the right. He found the Buddha and they had a conversation. Of you know more silent than silent kind of vitality or aliveness. Those of you who are in the retreat all the time here probably don't feel it, but uh, if you like, some of us have gone out and come back. You can really feel it here, uh, the stillness that's here and that's holding and carrying all of us. I like to think in that the combination of stillness and power, that uh, is samadhi, uh, that of a candle flame. It's unwavering unwavering, unwavering ca- candles felling. It looks like it's completely still, but we know that inside the flame it's dynamic. It's the sense of inner dynamism, of light, but still it's a st- very deep steadiness. So samadhi follows in this list that we're going through these evenings. It follows um, sukha. And in this list the idea is that sukha is a supporting condition for concentration. And this is very helpful, I think. It was very, I wish I'd known this earlier in my practice because I thought I could go from zero to concent- concentrated in a second or two seconds or a minute. You know, on your mark, get set. And as if that's all you had to do was just, you know, boom, focus. And uh, it took me a long time to realize that I, I don't know how it is for you. Maybe you have a very different process. But uh, I actually don't know how to get concentrated. All I know to do is to create the conditions for concentration. And if I create the conditions for it, then sometimes, somehow, um, something happens, something shifts. And there's a settling, there's deeper kind of samadhi state that arises. I like the the title of the movie, um, Field of Dreams, where the kind of refrain through the movie was, build it and he will come. And so, an act of faith, this man builds a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. And then these baseball ghosts from the past appear. But um, build it and, and build it, and it'll come. So we have to build the conditions for it. And one of the conditions for concentration is Sukha. And I think of Sukha as, as a variety of English translations, as uh, Heather talked about. Um, certainly, happiness is one of them. But I like I, uh, the words. I I like. In, is I like the word ease. There's some sense of ease to be at ease with your life, with how things are. Because if you're not at ease and you're agitated and, and in conflict, and it's not you don't really create good conditions for samadhi. If there's agitation and conflict. There's also um, the sense of um, uh, another word I like is the word. Um, well-being. It's a simple word, um, and it's a broad word. I like using it because it's a word that many people can find themselves in. It's kind of is so broad and vague. <laughs> and, um, but I like it also because, at least in my vocabulary, well-being is kind of broad. It kind of implies something whole, holistic. And I believe that the earlier stages before samadhi are stages that are meant to help us become whole. Uh, not to be divided with ourselves or fragmented, and part of the uh, part of the process of becoming uh, concentrated or entering samadhi is this process of becoming whole. At least I think it's the samadhi is healthier the wholer we become, where we're not at war with ourselves or against ourselves. And um, there can be you can't have forced concentration that overrides the wholeness. And my impression is that in the bigger picture of practice it's not so useful to do that. It might be faster sometimes to force oneself into a concentrated state, but for a, a deeper kind of liberative and transformative value of samadhi, it's better to kind of enter into it as a find out how to be whole. And it's not that easy. Um, it takes a while, and so the earlier steps... Remember, samadhi now is the seventh step in this chain of the transcendent-dependent origination. The, the earlier ones point to the respect we need to have what it takes to kind of prepare the ground to do the work. So what does it take to become whole? What are the qualities that are helpful for that? There's a story from Japanese Zen tradition of a man who comes to a monastery to practice. He's quite capable and um, in concentration. And... um, many other qualities. But he practices for some time and doesn't really get anywhere in his practice. And so the Zen master uh, tells him, Oh, go to my closet in my office and get my go board. Go is a form of Japanese-Chinese chess. Get the chess board. And my sword. And, um, and then he calls in one of the oldest monks in the monastery, old, wise man. And he says, okay, the two of you now, I want you to play this chess game. And he said, I'm going to sit here with a sword in front of me, and whoever loses, I'm going to whop off your head. (laughs) The stakes are high. (laughs) And um, so the young man, who's quite capable and intelligent, he starts playing and they engage and they're playing, and they're really concentrated now. Boy, <laughs> the stakes are so high. And, um, and at some point, the young man sees that he's going to win. At that point, he looks up. He looks at the old monk, wrinkled, wizened, humble, clear, old monk, and he feels all this compassion for the monk. So he looks down at the board and he makes a move that would cause him to lose, for himself to lose. At that moment, the Zen master takes and he knocks the chessboard over. He says, no one wins, no one loses. <laughs> and then he turns to the young man and says, now you know what it takes. In order to really do this practice, you have to have compassion. You have to, be, have to discover, find the world of compassion. In my early years of Zen practice, I was all about concentration and wisdom, that, 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 enlightenment, enlightenment or bust. <laughs> and uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, what was happening to me was not enlightenment and concentration, but rather was compassionment. And I, I, my capacity for compassion grew and developed. And it was that sense that the compassion I had for myself and for others that held my faults, held my troubles, my conditioning, my suffering, my joys, that was a really became a very important supportive condition for me to feel at ease, to not be in conflict with myself, not mean, in conflict with all the difficulties I had, but then be willing just to be here, to be present. So, what does it take to be willing to open up or to relax and allow yourself to be as you are in such a way you're not in conflict with it, you don't necessarily condone it, but there's a kind of a subtleness with it or a lack of conflict with it. What are some of the ways to become whole? In addition to the qualities we've talked about, I think that some of the things that are really useful are gratitude, appreciation, respect, I once uh, heard a wonderful story from Jack Kornfield. And it uh, it was a story that uh, I knew some of it from when I was a kid in the 1960s. I'd read about this in the paper. About uh, these Japanese monks, Japanese soldiers in World War II, who um, were fighting the war and were sent into the jungle in the Philippines and told, keep fighting the war until we come and get you. And the war ended, and they forgot to get them. And so for 10, 20, 25 years after World War II, they were still in the jungles fighting World War II. And um, every once in a while, someone would come across them, and then they would, uh, uh, and the story that I heard is that uh, they would send someone from Japan, a dignitary, an old officer from Japan, would go into the jungles, call out, and the soldier would finally come out. And the officer would first thank the soldier. And the Japanese know how to thank, deep, deep bow. And then they would bring him with the the soldier on the boat to bring back to Japan and honor the person as a hero. And then just before getting off the boat in Japan, they would say, um, oh, and by the way, the war's over. And thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the service you've done. And I was really moved by that story when I heard it because of me and many people who are fighting wars that are long over. And it wasn't so much that that moved me, but what moved me was that gratitude appreciation for that part of us that's been fighting even though it's been over rather than feeling embarrassed embarrassing the soldier or ridiculing the soldier or you know, offering this kind of, kind of dignified way of thanking and respecting so that's another way of becoming whole, of becoming wholer is to respect and appreciate and have gratitude for all of who we are including that which is difficult and we're challenged by, and that maybe even makes us suffer, so that we're not in conflict, so that we're not fighting, because it's not possible to get settled if we're fighting. So the word samadhi in Pali or Sanskrit is sometimes translated as concentration But for me, the problem with the word concentration is it sometimes suggests this one-pointed laser-like gaze in the mental eye. If I just take that mental eye and bore into my breathing, me up here in the control tower, and the breathing down there, and if I just kind of, you know, strain, and I've done this sometimes, and sometimes I feel the strain in my eyes, actually, because I'm trying to, with the mental eye, it kind of translates into my physical eye. And if I just kind of like this, do this laser thing, my problems will be solved. And I found that that didn't work very well. But what I've found, what I've seen, what I've learned is that in, in Buddhism and also in my experience, is samadhi is not a particular functioning of the brain, of the mind, but rather is a state that gets cultivated and grows and as a state, it's something that's much more it's holistic, includes all of us. It's something that um, um, brings all of, our, all of who we are together into one place. And one of the functions of samadhi is unification, collectedness, gathering together. And, it, and many times we're fragmented from ourselves. We're at odds with ourselves. And it, it can be fragmentation, it can just be because we're so busy running around doing many things at once, or because we're at cross-purposes with ourselves. So I'll give you an example. If I sit down to meditate, and my intention is to be mindful of my breath, to be mindful of here, be here. That's my intention. However, when I was standing in line at dinner they ran out of pita bread because the person in front of me took 13 pieces. (laughs) Not noticing that I was standing there drooling over the pita bread. And so my sense of indignation, that feeling of indignation and anger and frustration has come with me up into the sitting so my intention is to focus on the breath. But my, my mind is concerned with the stories and the ideas about that person who took too many pita bread slices. And so that's two things. <clears throat> but then, I'm sitting before this, the sitting, before the, this, the 6.30 sitting, and... Dharma talk's coming up. So I start having Dharma talk thoughts. I wonder where the, if I should sit on the, on the floor this time or up in the chair? And which chair? And the best chair is usually taken by other people, so maybe I have to be quick and kind of dash as soon as they ring the bell. And so I start having planning thoughts. So I'm still kind of, my, my body is still kind of living with indignation. In fact, I still feel contracted from the indignation and anger But my thoughts are going towards which chair to sit in. My intention is to be with my breath. So that's just three things. (laughs) Only. I mean, I can go on, right? And probably, like in daily life, outside the retreat, you could have like, you know, a dozen different channels going. Your body has this lingering all this lingering stuff built up in your body. I and mean, some of the lingering stuff that we encounter here in the retreat is not just from dinner today. It's like from 30 years ago. <laughs> that channel is still operating. And you know, and so there's all these different things going on, and concerns and interests and you know. And so it's you sit down to have the intention to be with the breath. And there's a lot of competition for your attention. And so we're fragmented. We're pulled this way and that way by all of it. Part of the functioning of samadhi is to begin bringing together all the different faculties that we have so all our faculties are operating together uh, for the same purpose. So that our intention is clearly established. And oh, my intention is to really be here. My intention is not to beat myself up. I made that easily. I still might beat myself up, but my intention is to be here. Make that clear. It helps you really be clear about that. And then, as the collectedness happens, then our body settles down and becomes harmonized with the process of being here. With time, our emotional life gathers together and is really here together with the purpose we have in mind. The emotions are not lingering with something else the feeling tone of our experience, the Vedana, is directly connected to the process of samadhi or concentration itself. Even our thinking uh, is not thinking about something different, but we might be actually thinking about our breathing or thinking about what's happening here and now in a way that's supportive and helpful. So things get collected. All the different aspects of us get pulled in, harmonized, uh, so that they're operating together, that's part of the function of samadhi, the unification process. So one of the words that I like as a translation for samadhi is composure. It's kind of cute or kind of nice, the coincidence that uh, the the roots of the Sanskrit word samadhi have the same roots as the English word composure. The sam means with, and the d part of samadhi means to stand. And so compose, co- come, with, pose, to stand. But I like the word composure more because composure to me is not a single functioning of the laser of the mind. But composure is something we do with our whole being. We compose ourselves. If, you, if, you're, if you're asked to compose yourself, uh, you don't just do something funny with your mind. You kind of, kind of, you almost could do something with your whole being, your posture. You settle in, surround something. You center yourself on what's happening. To center yourself on the breath, to compose yourself on the breath, instead of fixating on the breath, brings in the different qualities of our being that operate together in this whole. So to compose yourself on the breath, you do it partly with your body, with your posture. Okay, I'm going to be here with my breathing, so we maybe soften the shoulders a little bit or soften the muscles of the ribcage a little bit. Kind of get a sense of the torso settling on the breath if you're following the breath in your torso here. The, um, uh, perhaps the mind also, not just the focus on the mind, but there's kind of a broadening of the mind, a relaxing of the mind, where the mind can settle into what it's composed on. When I grew up in the fifties and sixties, the word composure, compose yourself was Victorianly archaic. But I've learned to appreciate the word a lot, to be composed. So if you're having so when we're being mindful, and it's time to pay attention to something, be mindful of something, whatever it might be, you might experiment a little bit with composing yourself on that. So say there's something difficult, a difficult emotion arises. Say you're angry or sad. Rather than struggling with it, can you compose yourself on it? Rather than being at cross-purpose and have differing ideas of what's supposed to happen, can you gather yourself together around the anger or the sadness so that you're really there for it, not there to resist it or fight it, not there to because you're judging yourself, not there because you think you're supposed to be someplace else, but really kind of compose yourself physically, feel, sense what it's like in your body to be angry, feel the emotions, have your thoughts, your ideas, everything kind of settled, composed, really feel and sense what's there. A big part of samadhi is relaxation, is being relaxed, is letting go. And this took me a long time to learn that a uh, big, big part of becoming concentrated is relaxing, letting go, not making so much effort. I'm, such, I'm very much of a doer, so learning not to do took a while. Don't do. Just let go. Soften. And it took me a while also to learn not to... Once I started learning to do that, it took me a while to learn not to fall asleep to be the candle flame, to have have the alertness, the chi, the energy that's there, while at the same time relaxing. To have the dynamic quality of practice together with the softening, the relaxing. So uh, to compose. Um, Now one of the things I think that's been helpful also is to understand something about thinking how to work with thoughts when we practice. Because it's one of the primary ways in which we fragment ourselves and our cross-purpose with ourselves is by living too much in our thoughts and our thinking. So one of the ways, so if if thinking becomes a big deal for you, very active for you here, uh, what does it mean to bring mindfulness to thinking, to compose yourself from the experience of thinking? One of the things I find very useful to do is to, if the thinking is really problematic, like a lot of thinking, is to tune into, feel and sense, physically and energetically, what it's like to be thinking. Don't, not so much what you're thinking about, but the sense of pressure or tension or tightness or a lot of energy or agitation in the system that might be there. I find that when I get a lot of thoughts going, my center of gravity travels up. I get energized and I kind of lift it up in a kind of way. I'm not composed. I'm kind of top-heavy. And um, it's interesting to kind of explore and feel what it's like to going on physically. And sometimes it feels to me like the, uh, the, like there's like a thinking muscle in the brain that is tight or pressurized or something. And if I can feel that, sometimes it's possible to soften that thinking muscle, and relax. And why that's useful is that if, if the pressure, or the tightness, or the agitation is still there, it's like a factory ready to pump out new thoughts. So you can let go of thoughts forever, but if that pressure to think is still there, you will, you'll keep thinking new thoughts. But if you can feel the physicality of thinking, then perhaps you can soften, relax, compose yourself on it, settle on it. Um, If you can't relax it, don't be in conflict with it, but feel it and sense it. One way to be with things, experience, is to feel and sense and make space for. It helps a lot, if you want to get concentrated, to appreciate that you don't have to believe every thought you have. You don't have to give authority to every thought that your mind can make up. You don't have to uh, invest a lot of meaning in whatever your thought can think, your thinking can think about. So you're willing to a little bit step back slightly or open up a little bit to new possibilities. And that sense of opening up to something new, allowing something new to happen, is another thing that supports a samadhi. Samadhi, being this holistic sense of presence of samadhi, it doesn't really happen so much by forcing yourself to, into some defined idea of who you're supposed to be. It has a lot to do with letting go. And then in letting go, I find having a sense of allowing something to arise, allowing something to be there, making space for whatever it might be. And if it's not samadhi, I have a lot of faith and trust that if you're present and allow what's there to bubble up without getting involved in it and caught with it, it probably needed to come up. It's okay. It's really okay. And that is the great American mantra. <laughs> it's okay. And we use it a lot for little kids. Three year old kids, two year old. It's okay. You can't do anything else, but you can say it's okay. It's okay. Also with thinking, it's, uh, it's very interesting to explore thinking and study a little bit what happens to you when you think. Because it's one of the places sometimes you can see where the fragmentation occurs, the splitting. How uh, we're not really whole, we're not really connected very well if you're caught up in thoughts and ideas. It's interesting to, you know, you look for the next opportunity uh, when you're sitting, meditation or something, for when you feel pretty settled, pretty here, and pretty open, clear, and enough, somaticum, and then um, wait—you know—you know—wait for some really juicy thought to happen, and you get pulled into that world of thought. And when that happens, say, "Great." And then, and then look, and look at the contrast between where you were in the more open present state versus being in your th- in your thinking. And you'll probably feel a qualitative difference. You might feel a contraction of attention. You might feel... Some people have reported darkening. It seems like things are kind of dark compared to the open clarity of before. Um, there's a sense of disconnection. You get more you get pulled into your thoughts, the less connectedness there is to the body, to kind of your lived experience here. It's possible to see and feel how preoccupation with thinking disconnects you, separates you. That's useful information to have because then you can maybe begin kind of softening, or relaxing, or not kind of giving in to that. Or think that maybe there's an alternative to thinking. Maybe every thought, all well, I'm thinking, is not so the best place to be. One of the ways that we use thoughts, or the thinking is an important part of this, to fragment ourselves, to separate ourselves, is to define ourselves by our experience, to identify with it. So if we're sad, I am sad. If we're angry, I am angry. If I'm concentrated, I am a- concentrated. Thank you. <laughs> and so we kind of define ourselves, and that definition, it seems like, you know, it seems innocent enough, actually kind of, often kind of hardens things a little bit. If you just say sad, there's sadness here, there's less tightening or locking up around it, more, or less, more likely, softer around it. As soon as you add the word I, you get kind of tight. Or it's a magnet for all kinds of association, associated ideas you have for who I am. And, you know, all the I-ness kind of streams in. Just leave it alone, it's just sad liberate your sadness from you, please. Just that. Or just being concentrated or being happy. Just, just be very simple with it. The idea of defining. But the idea of defining works on many, many levels. And some of them might seem very innocent, but they kind of keep us from being really soft or whole or opening up completely. So, for example, operating almost subconsciously, maybe mostly subconsciously, can be a simple definition where we define ourselves by the contours of our body. And it's an activity of the mind to def- to have a sense of a body or hand or head or face. It's it's a reasonable concept to have, it's not wrong. It's not bad for having it, but if you operate f- from the idea of defining yourself physically, it puts a limit on the on the, um, on the uh, opening or the expanding or the opening or the freeing quality of presence, of awareness. Awareness, presence, it doesn't have to be defined by anything. It doesn't have to be defined by the boundaries of our body. It doesn't have to be defined by um, there's subtle ways in which we define ourselves or define our situation. By saying I'm in a room, I'm in a room with a lot of other people, and there can be a small little part of the mind that's operating, always operating, even in, you know, sitting meditating. where You haven't really forgotten the fact that there's people around you. It's okay to know that people are there are people around you. It's okay. But it's interesting to notice how, as the mind softens and relaxes, that the sense of def- being defined by things can begin falling away. And so, as the as it sounds almost like a, a wonderful awareness or softening or whole, whole sense of being whole, not being in conflict with ourselves, grows and spreads, and it's a broad, wide state. That it's broader than boundaries of ourself, our self or body. That includes everything. Nothing is left out. And that, I think, is a really important part of what we're trying to do here, is find a way of not to leave anything out, to include it all, the good and the bad, the difficult and the wonderful. There's a poem by a Japanese nun. I apologize, I don't remember her name, long ago. I don't even remember the poem that well. But it goes something like this. In, in this decrepit old hut, the moonlight shines through the cracks in the roof. So it's an old old hut, it's all falling apart, and the roof is not intact. So this moonlight can shine through. But in Japanese poetry, it's very symbolic, the hut stands for oneself. So she's talking about herself. She's broken in some way. And that in that brokenness, the moonlight and the moonlight stands for "Awakening," for being complete. So rather than fixing the hut, the crack allows her to see the moonlight this idea of becoming whole, a samadhi that includes it all, doesn't require you to first fix all your woundedness or brokenness. Maybe there's another way of relaxing, opening up, composing yourself, holding that without definition. It's okay. And in that composure, settling. I mentioned that the simile the Buddha gave for joy was that of a lake with no no water flowing in from the outside of the lake, but a deep, refreshing current of spring water bubbling up from the floor of the lake. The simile for happiness is when there's no current anymore, but this refreshing pool of water is completely still, and it's very peaceful, very easeful. The happiness has a peace and an ease to it. Everything's kind of still. To go beyond this kind of still happiness, sublime kind of sense of ease, the simile is that of a person coming out of the, taking a wonderfully refreshing dip in the lake, and then sitting comfortable, content, up against a tree in the shade, wrapped from head to toe with a brand new soft white cotton blanket or sheet. Buddha with no part of the body not touched by this wonderful soft enveloping cotton sheet. All parts included, nothing left out. Everything embraced and held and whole got kind of this composure that holds it all. One of the reasons we do mindfulness practice is so that we can clearly recognize what we need to include, what we need to compose ourselves with. I use this word over and over again: compose as an alternative to conflict, conflict, to be in conflict with. I don't think you need to be in conflict with anything. If you compose yourself and are mindful of it, be here with it. And so the culmination of concentration practice in this chain of transcendental liberation uh, is when the samadhi starts supporting equanimity. And equanimity when, means when the awareness can hold whatever's going on and is not for and against what's going on. It's not reactive by what's going on. It's not pushed around by what's going on. There's a, there's a lot of space in the mind, openness, awareness, settledness, composure in the mind, that all kinds of things can arise and happen. And the mind stays broad, perhaps, or open, or spacious, or peaceful. And when the mind is peaceful and equanimous like that, stable and equanimous, then you have a much better situation to be able to see clearly without the filter of your conditioning, without filters of your likes and dislikes, without the filter of your emotional reaction to what's going on. And so to move into the next step of transcendent-dependent origination, which will happen tomorrow, is, uh, the next step is to see things as they are. To see things as they are, you have to be able to not be, you know, be pushed around, jerked around, messed around by what's happening, but be equanimous, be at peace, not be in conflict with what is. of a few images or metaphors for samadhi. A classic one I've seen here in the West is that of a mountain, pyramid mountain, broad base, composed, settled on its base, here, really here, stable, to sit like a mountain. Another is that of a lake, Buddha used that a lot. Still, peaceful, I think of an alpine lake. Peaceful, clear, see right to the bottom of it, so clear, so still, peaceful. To relax the brain, not just by relaxing it, but letting the brain flatten out, spread out. Letting the brain spread out, be flatten out beyond the confines of the skull. Still, peaceful, quiet. And then the metaphor that Heather used yesterday of the swan gliding over the lake. It's peaceful gliding. It takes a lot of work for a swan to get up into the air takes a while, takes a lot of work to get present and composed. But once you're composed, you can let go of the effort and glide. And in the Theravada tradition, they sometimes use a bird as a metaphor for the mind. And sometimes the mind takes off and glides off into the sky. Free, relaxed, at ease, composed, sliding, gliding. Mind just is free, is set free. And it just goes. And then the bird, the mind, lets go of itself. The image of this bird that goes off into, the, off into the horizon and just dissolves into the horizon, it dissolves into the sky, into the space, free, let go. I hope this talk uh, this evening has encouraged you a little bit to let go of conflict that you might have with what's happening here in your practice on the retreat. To not relate to whatever is happening, which might be difficult, but not relate to it in a conflictive way. I would rather turn towards it and see, how can I be composed here? How can I soften here with this? Composed and soft without defining myself by it, without being pushed around by it or think about it or react to it, just this. It's okay, it's okay. So let's sit a little bit. Yeah. you.